so um, decent stuff, mediocre stuff, bad stuff, bad stuff. Yeah, no. like 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 your first day at a new job and you don't get home until after ten in the evening. Oh, I'm not excited to be back on the second shift grind. That is. Oh, I didn't oh, realize that, that was painful. the time frame. Second that shift. Sucks. Second shift it's, is tough. It's like first and a half shift depending on the day, right? Because like on the weekends, we'll get there at eight in the morning because the garbage trucks don't go out on the weekends. But during the week, we have to wait until they bring all the trucks back from their route. So, I mean, it could be worse. I could could be a garbage man and have to get up at two in the morning to get to work on time. I mean, I know those are good jobs, but... They're they're difficult and dangerous jobs, yeah. Yeah. I like the second shift at the farm, which is eleven till five. That's like that's <laughs> like a yeah. true that's first a and shift. a half shift though. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's the thing about the washing the trucks is like we show up at the job site and we just work till all the trucks are clean or the lot closes and we're required to leave. Like so it's a little odd. Like the amount of hours I'm gonna get per week is going to fluctuate wildly oh. depending on how dirty certain trucks are. Right. So not the greatest situation. Definitely mm. one of those jobs that you get and then you, you keep putting in applications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably a pre- I would imagine there's like this like, like 30, 20% of the workforce. That's like people actually just sticking with it. And then the mm-hmm. rest is all transitory. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what it feels like. But also, like, there's a part of me that's glad that this job isn't that great for the, like, insane reason that that means that when summer rolls around next year, I won't have any trouble, like, piecing out to go back to seasonal work. (laughs) Right. The actual form of flexibility, unlike gig work, which is just a lie. Yeah, I mean, you really want to give workers flexibility, give them state-mandated health care, state-provided health care. No, but but we'll give you a a portable benefits package. It's just as good. Uh, Oh, shit, I accidentally flushed my portable benefits package down the fucking toilet where it belongs. Oh, no. Oh, fuck, help. I lost lost access to my $12,000 deductible plan that covers nothing. Brings us to the first uh, thing in the episode, Striketober. Striketober, <laughs> that's right. Welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody. The official Striketober podcast. I hope you have your candy corn and your mellow cream pumpkins and your cozy sweater and your pumpkin latte and all of the trappings of, of autumns. Yeah, and your picket signs and your labor antagonism and your deeply ingrained distrust of bosses and police. That's Bring right. all of that with you. <laughs> please, please, as many people as can find them, send in your spooky Halloween-themed picket line signs because right. uh, those are going to be universally fantastic. <laughs> I got a I mean, bone to a... pick with management. See? There you go. So yeah. easy. There's a free one right there for anyone to use. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, which? Which, W-I-T-C-H, which benefits will they cut next? Am I right, fellow workers? <laughs> and you can literally just put up, like, anything, any monster, and just be like, the only thing scarier than this 
is the like contract proposal from our bosses or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, Frankenstein is the the doctor. The monster is called, and then you just insert your boss's name right there on the sign. Boom. Done and done. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the monster is Littler Mendelssohn. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's right. fucking right. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, this is Work Stoppage. We are entirely listener supported, so thank you for throwing us a few bucks on Patreon if you do. If you don't, that's okay. If you can't afford the bonus episodes, please just message me and I will send them to you. But we appreciate every dollar we get. Uh, it prevents us from having to run ads, something we would never do anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. And if you're not in the Discord, feel free to hop in there. It's a great place to see the actual visual memes from the meme review. And thank right. you so much this for is, all the we're, reviews. We're not like us. looking at uh, like reasons to get into advertising. Yeah, this I mean, episode of your favorite <laughs> Anti-capitalist labor podcast is brought to you by Casper Mattresses, <laughs> the only mattress that's a spooky fucking ghost for Halloween. Um, that your boss tells you to buy. That your boss tells you to we, buy. That's right. We, we just start doing a bit where we like do fake ads, but for only for companies that are union busting. So it's like <laughs> this, this. This episode's brought to you by HelloFresh, the shittiest service that you can buy meals from on the internet. This episode is brought to you by Lyft. Lyft, a ride-sharing service so bad that if you need a ride somewhere, just start fucking walking. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, we want to talk about some real, actual stories that are happening out in the real, actual labor world. And we're going to start by following up with the NLRB ruling in favor of the fired Voodoo Donuts workers. Some workers that we actually had an, uh, an opportunity to talk to here on the podcast where they detailed the horrific working conditions they were facing and the backlash that they faced after organizing. And now the NLRB has not only ruled that the firing of nine striking workers was illegal, but has also ruled that they are required to receive back pay for the entire time that they were fired. So that's yeah. just fucking excellent. Even if they don't get rehired, which they are legally required to be given the opportunity to, if they're not interested, they're going to receive that back pay anyway. So it's a small thing. I know it's only nine workers, but it's, it's huge to see the NLRB uh, ruling in favor of groups like this. Yeah, I think that one of the things that this should like incentivize people to do is seek retribution for wrongful termination and Absolutely. other sorts of, of unfair labor practices that many companies do. Because especially if people are fired, because that's a pretty serious thing, and uh, apparently the NLRB does take it seriously in certain cases, at least you could get a little bit of that money back, even if you still want to tell the company to go fuck themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... It, it, this was one of the things that I think like stood out when we initially talked to Donut Workers United is is they're pointing out they're like in addition to you know all the awful practices by Voodoo Donuts the environment that folks were forced to work in it's like the firing of workers for striking was so clearly illegal and like one of the more obvious like violations of the National Labor Relations Act that you know we've seen in a while. But even then, I do think like that's that's one like one thing that you can take away from this story is that you absolutely should fight that shit mm -hmm. and always go for, you know, every dollar in back pay that, you know, you can possibly get. But also this this does show, you know, the limitations, I think, of of the system that we're, we're working under here, where even when everyone knows 
that that shit was illegal. Like that it was obvious from the day they did it that they had no justification for firing these people. It was clearly in retaliation. It still took, you know, like almost three months yeah, yeah. I, for, for this ruling. I think it's uh, also worth revisiting just a little bit of like the reasoning that at least the person that we uh, interviewed was fired. It was that they did not necessarily uh do a concerted protected work activity or something like that that the company was saying that they didn't do they didn't know that the conditions were bad despite having been there the day before or the days before having looked at the weather looked at what the conditions were having known Mm -hmm. what everything was going to happen and then they went out on picket or like i guess on temporary strike and then were uh and then were fired because of that and then were told that it was not a protected work activity despite the fact that it was pretty clearly in solidarity with other all of the other workers and it it was just on its face like what management will say it's like get back to work or else yeah and just to refresh um any listeners uh memories who don't remember exactly what the conditions were like these workers were working in the middle of the pacific northwest's biggest heat wave in like decades in uh buildings without AC or without functioning AC where the temperature would routinely go up into the mid high nineties. And, you know, and this wasn't just uh, affecting the workers. It was affecting the customers. It was affecting the quality of the product. It was affecting everything. And management uh, just was too married to the idea that they could keep grinding out money uh, to do anything to address these workers' concerns. Yeah. And, and there was another actual part of this NLRB ruling that, that was interesting because one of the things about this story was, Prior to the strike action, there had been an attempted, you know, NLRB official election for a Donut Workers United union recognition by the branch. And that, unfortunately, didn't pass. And one of the things that was in this ruling from the NLRB was an acknowledgement that a part of the reason for that vote was illegal harassment by Voodoo Donuts. And they specifically said that the company created an atmosphere of fear in the workplace, where have we ever heard that before? Uh, and and included that they illegally surveilled them. workers. All of the yeah. cases. I think we're. I think it's a hundred percent of cases. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nine out of nine. Yeah, yeah. And 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 they uh, they interviewed uh, an organizer with a Portland IWW who had been working with DWU through this, Mark Medina, who said, "Quote: While this is a great victory on behalf of workers, the company had nothing to do with it. The company doesn't care enough about workers until they're forced by the federal government." And then there was a, uh, there was a good post that, that Donut Workers United put up on their Facebook page that I, I thought was really good. They had a, se- a section here that said, quote, this is not only a huge victory for Donut Workers United, but for the labor movement as a whole. DWU has shown resilience in the face of outright illegal methods of union busting and will continue to persevere into the future. DWU's goals have always been to provide mutual aid to all Vodou Donuts staff in need, improve work and safety conditions, negotiating with the company towards a living wage, and creating a democratic workplace environment where the workers' voices are heard and valued. I think that last part is super important, and I think it gets left out of a lot of reasons why people, like, actually want to do organizing because i don't think that people realize the true benefit of having a democratically run workplace where you actually decide the things that are going on day to day when there are issues you go to the people on the floor and you say hey how do we fix this and you decide on something and then you do it the amount of freedom that comes from that sort of uh arrangement of work conditions is uh, like 
I guess I should say, uh, irreplaceable by mm-hmm. even even like the greatest wage increases in certain cases. Like, I mean, I guess if you were paid sixty nine dollars an hour or something like that, it would uh, maybe mitigate <laughs> some of that. Sure. But I I don't think that you're ever going to get up to that amount. And so a bit of right. democracy in the workplace is going to do you a lot more good. It goes a long way, and it can be an engine that drives your wages up over time as well. So that's the thing. Yeah. I think people um, get get deceived by the the capitalist ideology that prevails into thinking that like, oh, you know, it, it's all about the bottom line, and it is ultimately all about the bottom line. But like sometimes something that doesn't earn you necessarily more money right in the moment is going to be. Uh, like a long-term investment in your ability to fight for not just better pay, but better benefits, better time off, general quality yeah. of life increases, stuff like that. Especially because in a democratic workplace, you can you are more free to communicate with your coworkers. You are mm-hmm. allowed to talk about more things. You are not going to be told you cannot discuss your wages because that is something that you would democratically decide on, things like that. Even though that's illegal in the first place, but you have more recourse. And it's all basically just like a, a antidote to the system of worker oppression that we have have here in the United States. But speaking of systems of worker oppression, let's talk about a particularly violent and visible uh, incident of worker repression in which a convoy of vehicles belonging to a BJP minister in Lakhimpur, Uttar Pradesh, uh, last weekend actually attacked farmers who were protesting uh, in the days following the recent general strike and ended up killing, uh, I believe, four of them. Yeah, this is, I I mean, this sort of incident, unfortunately, uh, I'm sure will be relatively familiar to many of our listeners because in in addition, obviously, to the stuff we've talked about in the past about um, Warrior Met Coal strikers who have been attacked with vehicles on the picket line, obviously all throughout last summer's uprising, we saw white supremacists using vehicle attacks against uh, various protest groups of, of from Black Lives Matter folks, water protectors, all sorts of of different protests. And and now we've seen the tactic used here in India, where just a couple of days after that that recent general strike we just covered, there was a basically there was a some some kind of a rally going on, um, I believe, from the local state government, which is run by the BJP. At the same time that there was a protest of said government going on and and in their their desire to leave the area, this convoy of vehicles, which is believed to have been being like led like the the driver of the, the lead vehicle is believed to be the son of the local uh, state minister. Ajay uh, Kumar Mishra, and it's, it's believed his son Ashish Mishra was the, the driver of the, the lead car. They are claiming that they were, quote, attacked by farmers throwing stones. Oh, where have we heard that before? At a convoy of SUVs, which even if that was true, I don't care. Like, right. And so the cars accelerated into the crowd, uh, murdering four farmers whose names are Daljeet Singh, who was 40, Gurvinder Singh, who was 20, and they're both from the... Uh, Bareich district. I apologize in advance for my pronunciation. And then uh, Nachatar Singh, who was 62, and Lovepreet Singh, who was 20, both of the Lakhimpur Kheri district. Uh, and in the in the immediate aftermath of the the convoy ramming the the crowd of protesters, the protesting farmers fought back 
flipping over several of the vehicles uh, and actually uh, bringing a couple of the the like drivers of the vehicles to you know some some form of people's justice. Uh, so you did end up with four farmers killed and then four members of the convoy killed. However, the uh, like the lead vehicle and and some other members uh, basically got away. And there was over a week, I believe, after the incident before the police actually bothered to even question the the guy who's believed to have been the driver of the vehicle, this um, Ashish Mishra, the, the son of a, a BJP minister in the area. And so there's been some, you know, in addition to the, you know, rage at this, this violent attack, uh, by the, the, you know, ruling fascist party, you also then have the, the state repressive apparatus that's supposedly investigating this completely dragging its feet on actually doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, all of this has been handled, uh, especially from the, the minister's, uh, point of view in the Indian media by characterizing it as the drivers being attacked by farmers throwing stones. And I see here in the notes, uh, Dan, that you've mentioned that this ludicrous assertion, uh, is reminiscent of the defense made by white supremacists who committed vehicle ramming attacks on BLM protesters. It also reminds me of what the IDF routinely says about Palestinian protesters it's just it's one of the oldest and most common tricks in the book and should be an immediate red flag to anybody looking at this situation from the outside yeah and and i've seen like people trying to break down video of of this event trying to determine if stones were thrown i'm like i don't care i don't (laughs) care if they threw a boulder at this thing that that you're in a, a a fucking suv I don't care about the damage to your property that yeah. d- that doesn't justify ramming protesters. So that defense is even if it was in good faith with it, it never is. It's bullshit on the face. Yeah. I mean, I, I showed up at someone's house uninvited wearing a full suit of armor, swinging a sword and they shot me with a pellet gun. I think <laughs> yeah. it's obvious that they're in the wrong here. Like that's basically what this is. Yeah. And, and so like, uh, I've been uh, trying to keep, you know, track is it cause this is very much an evolving situation and like news click has had like daily updates on this, which has been really helpful. Um, and so it looks like right now what the big contention is, is you have basically the farmers movement and like groups like, uh, all Indian Kisan Sabha, who, who we've, we've talked about before in the past where like, which is the largest peasant organization in the country, as well as like parties from across the, the spectrum, including, I believe members of the, the, the very large liberal Congress party in, in India have called now for the dismissal of, of said state minister, um, uh, Ajay Mishra, because they've pointed out that like a, when the whole, there's already not a very high likelihood of a quote unquote fair investigation. But when the state's interior ministry is run by the guy whose son they're investigating, right. Not, uh, not, not, not much hope there for a actual investigation, even if you trusted the police to do that in the first place. So that, that, that's an issue that, that the folks are are pressing on now to try and actually get a, an attempt at a neutral investigation. But I, I don't know, consider the, the BJP has uh, control of the Uttar Pradesh government. So I think it's, you're going to, we're going to see like a, 
this, you know, another side of class struggle between the, the ruling fascist party and the, the farmers movement. And, and I, I think it's going to ultimately be that level of local mobilization and, and, and force that the, the farmers are able to bring to bear that will likely determine the outcome here, whether we just get a, a complete whitewash where they're like, like the outcome we saw in pretty much every one of these vehicle attacks in the U S where you either get the person gets off completely on a, Oh, well they were scared defense, (laughs) which is, which is what happens so much here. Or they get some kind of a slap on the wrist, like, oh, uh, reckless driving or right. some nonsense like that. Or if you actually, you know, if there's enough, uh, you know, public pressure and considering they what burn we, down a police department. Right. I mean, considering what we've <laughs> seen from the farmers movement, I think there's a decent chance there will be, uh, you know, quite a lot of, of, of public outcry against this. And so that if, if anything leads to a fair investigation, it will yeah. be that. I mean, here's hoping it, it's so dismaying, though, in these, you know, basically fascist states like India and the United States to see this kind of stuff get handled in the national court, uh, considering like the ongoing saga of the United States court system being totally unable to handle the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Oh, God. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence, especially when the Indian justice system basically cribbed a lot of their notes from the United States. So, but, but. On the other hand, as we've mentioned before, the class struggle is 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 more advanced in India, and so mm-hmm. if you know if any groups can actually bring the organized pressure needed to to bring these sorts of systems into line, I, I think that the farmers' organizations in India will have a, a better chance than most sure. with, with the level of organization that they've got. So, so we'll keep following this, and and hopefully the the people responsible are are brought to some measure of justice. Right, and I guess. Yep. On the thought of, you know, having, you know, sli- kind of strong institutions. Yeah, applying move pressure. To, yeah, applying yeah. pressure. We can move to our uh, IATSE story, which is a lot of the people who work on film sets and other sorts of media production, where we are seeing one of the largest authorizations for a strike in recent, hi- in recent history uh, with... Nearly 60,000 workers at the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, uh, where they voted to authorize for this, this strike. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And, and being kind of loosely associated with uh, media creation, I've seen in some of the trade groups that I'm in that a lot of people are actually uh, joining the union just because a lot of this, this going on. People are seeing that they can fight for something better. So that's, that's well, also pretty good. It kind of a uh, it kind of is another nail in the coffin of the idea that unions need to be more like quote unquote moderate or centrist in order right. to attract a broader membership because what actually seems to bring people in is when you do something radical and take a stand for the people who belong to your union. Yeah, I mean, you know, we obviously we're a labor show. We talk about strikes all the time, mm-hmm. but we don't. I don't think that I've seen. <laughs> Uh, a level of like unity in very many of, of the, the bigger strikes that, that w- sure. or at least the authorization votes that we've talked about, because not only is IATSE a really big union, it's actually, I believe it actually has a total membership of something about 180,000 wow. where the, the 60,000 is the workers that are currently under the contracts that have you know expired, that they're trying to get a new fair one, which we'll go into the details here in a bit. But not only did they get 90% of the membership to vote, which that is 
out of 90% of 60,000 people, that's a real, like that tells you the level of engagement that people in the union actually have with this. And to then get essentially 99% in favor of a strike, honestly, I think kind of points to the idea that this strike is long overdue. Sure. Well, judging from the conditions that were outlined in the couple of articles that we have here, it would seem that they're uh, much more incredibly overdue than I've seen in in almost any industry that we've looked at so far on this show. Uh, This is one of the only industries I've seen where working 60 hours a week, 10 hour days, six days a week or 12 hour days, five days a week is considered the baseline. Yeah. And where the, um, the bosses are in a unique position where they have so much fucking money because you got to understand like movie studios really are like economic Titans on the American landscape, um, have so much money that no matter what kind of fines stipulations, uh, you know, whatever you add for driving these people beyond their reasonable working limits, you know, extra hours on the day, get hit with penalties, get hit with steep overtime, uh, you know, uh, adjustments to wage. And the studios don't care. They will work you to the bone 20 hours a day sometimes, whatever it fucking costs to get these movies made. And I think the people in these unions are finally joining together and saying like, that's absolutely not fucking (laughs) acceptable. You can't just throw money at the problem. Yeah. Well, and the barrier to get into this, into some of these industries is ridiculous. You can be fully trained and never, ever get in. I mean, like, doesn't this, doesn't this just say that they need twice as many employees? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that I like, there was a, um, Specifically, there was a Liberation News article that was going into the background of this strike. And one of the things I talked that I liked that they put in there was they talked about the process leading up to this vote, where they talked about the way that IATSE, like individual rank and file members, had been mobilizing support for the strike vote, where they, you know, they held rallies, they circulated petitions, they did banner drops, they did car rallies, and they even at one point hired a, uh, like, a banner to get towed behind a plane that flew over studio lots during the first day of voting. You know, it's so crazy that a bunch of people who work professionally in production are really good at making a visual statement in (laughs) physical space. (laughs) No, I know, but it's great to see folks like mobilizing their, their already, as you're pointing out, existing skill sets for Mm -hmm. something like this, because not only did they manage to get, you know, 90% of the membership to vote 99% in favor of the vote, they've also been getting uh, so much support from other, you know, members of the labor movement, mm-hmm. hearing from like getting union solidarity from the UFW, AFT, NNU, RDWSU, ILWU, and Unite here. And I've seen tons of I don't, of members of, I, I haven't seen if there's been a specific total union uh, solidarity mentioned from SAG-AFTRA, but I know there have been tons of like individual members of SAG-AFTRA who have come out in support of the strike. Right, yeah, like I'm sure think, Danny really DeVito thought... was on Twitter day one talking <laughs> yeah. about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was actually a little surprised when I saw this list to not see uh, SAG-AFTRA in there. They, just, they may yeah. have, have officially declared in favor of it and uh, just like since the time the article came mm-hmm. out. But right. Because I know I've definitely seen a lot of their members. I just... I haven't necessarily seen that specific one. And they even, they've did so much outreach. They even got 120 members of Congress 
you know, the the most spineless group of people in America <laughs> to actually sign a letter calling for improved wages and working conditions. And if you can get those motherfuckers to sign on to this, then you're doing a hell of an outreach job. Well, everybody need they, they need their Netflix. 120 Congress <laughs> yeah, people too. should just legislate a fucking solution to this. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, they're think. still kind of showing their spinelessness by not yes. actually stepping up. But yeah, no, I mean, this is this is badass to see this this level of expertise wielded in the service of of gains for labor well i think that that is exactly especially with the way that our system is meant to isolate us and to put us in our little bubbles Mm -hmm. of of watching whatever shows we love as soon as our shows are at risk like that's (laughs) when we that's when we step up and we're like okay you know what i am pro-union now you know i really gotta if i want my freaking uh squid game 2 i'm gonna right I need to be supporting these workers. Squid Game North American localized version featuring product placement from KFC. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think at this point we're just making it Demolition Man too. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's that's the thing, and I think that's one of the reasons that like Hollywood and production adjacent stuff does tend to get the media attention is because like it puts yeah. shows on the line. Like everybody remembers the two different writers strikes that took place over the last few decades, uh, and. And they're like, actually you know. talked about all the time in in like that industry. It's like really the thing that people hold up as what we remember about labor. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that shouldn't be something that I mean we've said this about so many other strikes and labor practices and everything. But like that, the threat of that shouldn't be your last resort. It should be your abs- It should be one of your first things that you reach for because yeah. it gets attention. It builds broad support. It publicizes your issue to the general public and beyond just helping you and your organization organization it also generally makes people more interested in what labor struggle is and does which is fucking huge and that needs all the the pr it can get although you bring up a pretty important point john there the reason why i think what you're bringing up is important is because i have seen a bunch of iatsi locals be like the strike is the the tool of last resort and Mm -hmm. and i find that to be kind of an unfortunate statement uh i know it's kind of empowering to people who don't understand the reason for labor antagonism but uh to have the unions themselves come out and say that it is the you the tool of last resort is really just kind of not looking at how labor struggle actually happens because i mean even even you know walking off the job for a day is considered a strike and if that is a last resort then i'm i'm pretty sure that you're not going to get very far well there there's a whole perspective issue here i think and i don't want to be too critical of the union they're doing fantastic work right now mm-hmm. but in the labor notes piece that i was reading on this one of their responses to the question what is it like working with others in your union do you as a rank and file worker have differing opinions from your union staff and they responded i'm still shocked at the amount of people in our union working in a liberal industry issue number one who still vote against their interests in general elections there's a lot of guys who i work with who vote republican and it doesn't really make sense but i think our union leaders try to be delicate with those people which that that really perplexed me and i think that whole idea that there's like a a liberal solution (laughs) to this that we could be moving towards if we could just get these weird republican voters in the union to play along has got to be a huge impediment to progress because I'm not saying that Republicans aren't bad, but I'm saying that like voting Democrat is not really any better, maybe a tenth of a percent or something. But like it really is an insignificant difference. And the idea that these two 
both conservative, both liberal parties represent some kind of political dichotomy that we need to overcome in the union movement uh, or, or that we need to mediate in the union movement instead of overcome or rather just disregard, I think really does lead to a, a limited imagination sometimes in what can be accomplished. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, look, we support everything they're doing right now. Absolutely. I think that, that the process they're going through right now, especially what the rank and file has done to motivate support for this strike has been really awesome and people should take examples from it for, for future strikes. But one of the things they pointed out in one of these articles that I can't help thinking of when I hear, you know, union locals say, oh, this is the movement of last resort is this would be the union's first nationwide strike in its 128 year history. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think I'm like, you know, if you guys had had one or two or three or a dozen more nationwide strikes before now, maybe conditions wouldn't be as shitty as they are. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't want to disparage any of the decisions that they're making in the campaign right now, but we would like to just softly suggest that, like, maybe bump that strike up to a more prominent position in your toolkit against what's happening here, because it is going to be far and away from historical observation, the most effective tool that you have against the industry. Yeah. And and as you mentioned before, with the conditions, John, like the conditions, like it. I know I've seen places like this is not I don't think this is a popular take, but I certainly have seen like some amount of dismissal about this because it's like, oh, this is a Hollywood union. Who cares? This is like this is like a a bougie job or something. But it's like, hey, this is the people. These are like carpenters and grips. Prop and costume designers, designers yeah. and, and makeup artists, hairdressers, e- and who and like if it were the studios themselves and the and the leaders of the studios, yeah, I could see that. But I mean, yeah. as someone who's worked in media creation, like the, that that is a working class job. Well, you got to stand and, up and ask yourself, like, if I'm really the best boy grip, why don't I make enough money to represent that? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like, and, <laughs> that's, that's a little Hollywood joke for the audience. <laughs> well, and, and to what you were talking about before, John, like the the conditions that they've talked about in this are truly insane. It, it is bizarre to me that a unionized job has people working these hours because, like, the hours these folks are working would be atrocious if you were a gig worker. Right. Well, because. There's there's the element that I, I think you were you were alluding to where it's like I they don't receive a lot of attention even sometimes from like more quote unquote like left uh, commentators mm-hmm. because they're like oh it's a it's a privilege to work in that industry right. anyway who cares which is the same shit your manager at GameStop fucking says to you to justify not paying you any fucking That's more right. so like just you know when you hear yourself making those kind of points be like wait a minute whose talking point is this again yeah. anyway yeah exactly. We are mm-hmm. not immune from propaganda. This mm-hmm. is an important point to remember. But that that labor notes piece you're talking about specifically cited an example of somebody who was working on a Netflix production who worked 106 hours in a week, which is yeah. an average of over 15 hours a day. Like that's in, I don't care what you're 106 doing. hours in a week. Yes. Yeah. I just want to let everyone know the number of hours in a week is 168. Yeah. yeah. So that's two thirds of your, of not even your waking hours, the total hours in your week spent at work. Yeah. And this has been, there, there are two primary aspects, it seems to the, the specific things that have driven this strike. One is just that, that the, 
the industry purposefully massively underemploys that the workforce is kept permanently short-staffed, and they paper over this by just paying meal penalties, break penalties that are included in their current contracts, which Mm -hmm. allow the studios to basically violate what would be required breaks, required, you know, stoppages for mealtimes by saying, okay, no, no, we got to get this shit done. We'll pay this extra amount of money because it's a tiny Mm -hmm. amount of money for the studios. I think that that itself is actually meant to perpetuate that myth that we were just saying and that like it's just some prestigious like, you know, it's the bourgeois like worker environment or whatever. Like the it is literally they are the ones who are creating that environment by like restricting the amount of hiring that they do. It's actually literally to squeeze the labor that exists and keep the kind of uh, job availability scarce because they do have the money to do that. They can just run people ragged. They are not interested in a workforce twice as large that is, you know, just as effective, if not more effective. They're they're not interested in that because this like the leverage that they have over these workers is so much more when you are getting, you know, for one, you have no time to go out and do organizing because you're working so much. But also right. uh, that you're you know, you get this, you know, this money and then you're working in this prestigious industry and you get all of the, that liberalism that says, you know, you don't need to fight harder. But really, if you look at these conditions objectively, they are worth fighting against. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that boils down to that classic capitalist propaganda trope of, hey, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, which you should never, ever (laughs) listen to anyone who tells you that. Like, work is work is work. They tell you that to get you to work for free. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, You gotta gotta shoot for the moon, right? Yeah. No, you got to shoot at the moon because the moon is a, a capitalist bastard. Um. But, yeah, well, the, so the the other aspect though that they mention in here that has really brought the current like contract negotiations to a head is kind of an almost an inverse of what we see with the two tier workforces, where they've 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 managed to like funnel studios into a two tier system where. N- Anything that's a streaming service is classified in their current contract and in the contracts proposed by studios as, quote-unquote, new media, and that that allows those companies to pay workers less, and they mention in here, up to $10 an hour less than productions for traditional media – And they're also allowed on these same projects to, they don't have to contribute as much to workers' retirement. They can get away with having a shorter turnaround time. So instead of having a mandated at least 10 hours between shifts, which is still not that much, uh, they can allow only an eight-hour turnaround time on shifts. And this is for... All of what are now the biggest media platforms out there, Netflix, Disney, Apple, Amazon Prime Video, and these are all getting bargain rates on labor because they've, they were able to, you know, convince the the union, oh, we're new media. We, we wouldn't be able to afford to do these productions if we didn't have these cutouts. And now they're arguing they should be kept, even though the entire industry is now dominated by these same platforms. That's right. Disney is a brand new platform, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, notable indie studios, Lucas Films and Netflix. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so those are the big things that they're fighting. I mean, specifically, one of the examples that folks mention a lot when they're talking about this is that numerous mem- members of IATSE over the years have died driving home from a shift where they worked. 12, 14, 16 hours for mm-hmm. the sixth day in a row and fell asleep at the wheel. And and there's like a whole documentary about how bad these conditions are. Like that's how bad it's been for so long. They yeah, even these, made another movie about it. Yeah, these these workers need uh, mandatory maximums like nurses have. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels. I mean, obviously it's, it's very different labor, but but the issues, especially with the staffing levels, there's a there's a big parallel there. Yeah. Um, well, and that's and, what, part of the reason why I think the National Nurses United even signed on is because they see that that parallel that that those hard working sure. conditions, the understaffing. I mean, like really, despite the fact that, that like other than the specific work that they're doing. It is so similar, the work conditions. Well, even yeah. in a certain sense, the work that they're doing, it's a specialist who has special skills that you absolutely need to run your, you know, industry uh, who are coming in and you're expecting them to work insane hours at insane times. Like a lot of prop designers and, and special effects artists and grips and stuff do work overnight 12 hour shifts yeah. just like a fucking nurse does they're on their feet they're harangued by their boss the whole time just like a nurse is so just because they're entertaining us instead of saving lives doesn't mean that we should pay any less attention to their work conditions absolutely and so after the announcement on monday where you know there's this big strong show of of, of unity from the unions immediately the the studios rushed back to the negotiating table however uh, from a couple of articles that I was reading, uh, they, they they both quoted a a member of IATSE who had seen the new offer, calling it "quote a big nothing burger," and, and so uh, the the union is now very much preparing for an actual strike. The the president of IATSE, Matthew Loeb, told Variety, "quote The ball's in their court. If they want to avoid a strike, they will return to the bargaining table and make us a reasonable offer." And they have said today, uh, the day that we're recording this. Uh, that the strike will begin at basically at midnight on Monday if there has not been a agreement that actually includes mandatory rest and meal periods and pay increases for their lowest paid workers. So uh, yeah. we're the the clock is ticking on this, and so next week mm-hmm. we may have a, an update on this where we've got the biggest strike in a decade going on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I guess you know, in the spirit of <laughs> Strike Tober. With this looming strike, we also are going to go to something that we've definitely been talking about in the Discord, and I'm sure many people have heard about. It's actually a pretty big strike going on, but it's uh, the Kellogg's workers at... are they all of the fact all of the Kellogg's yep. uh, factories in the United States? Yeah, I thought it was all mm-hmm. of them um, in like Battle Creek, Michigan, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, all of these factories are on strike right now. Uh, to because the company is again attacking workers. Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The the parallels in this. When I was reading all the stories, like running down, it's like you know what are, what are workers talking about? What were the the conditions that drove the union to this strike? It's 
everything about this is the Nabisco strike all over again and the Frito-Lay strike. It's the same condition. These workers in, in these, these industries have all been facing the same bullshit from these, you know, mega corporations. It's just this time it's Kellogg's where they've got, you know, you've got workers being forced to work incredibly long shifts like many, many days in a row, you've got an attempt at creating a two-tiered workforce. You've got attempted cuts to healthcare benefits all under the shadow of the, the corporation constantly threatening the union that if they don't accept these concessions that, well, well, we're going to send jobs to Mexico and then trying to, you know, use xenophobia to drive a wedge in the workers to, to get them to try and blame, you know, workers in Mexico for their problems and not the company that's, you know, taking this stuff away from yeah, them. Yeah, not a company founded by weird evangelicals who thought <laughs> yeah. that eating plain oats would prevent people from <laughs> masturbating. So I wonder who's the real problem in this situation. Yeah. Mexico no, exactly. or the weird fucking evangelical. <laughs> Th- thankfully, just like in the case with Nabisco in, in the, the stuff I've been reading on this, I have not seen Kellogg's workers taking that bait. I have not seen anybody blaming Mexican workers erroneously for these problems and, and, th- and have correctly been aiming their ire at Kellogg's because like this has got so many of the same things, like specifically the most recent contract that these workers ha- had signed created a class of quote, transitional employees, which is the same thing we've seen in many industries. It's basically creating a, a subclass of, of more exploited workers who are paid $12 an hour less in this case. They have less benefits than legacy employees. They can eventually graduate into being a full employee, they, whatever you want to call it in that case. And the, but only when those higher paid employees retire or quit. Uh, and currently the contract stipulates that no more than 30% of the workforce can be this transitional type of, of lower paid worker. But now Kellogg's is trying to just get rid of that cap entirely, basically, so that they can, you know, as members who have been paid relatively well, but mm-hmm. working incredibly insane hours, um, retire, you know, age out of the workforce, that eventually they can completely replace these jobs that have made good careers for people with these, like, essentially what we saw in this fucking tweet that has been going around today. Some guy who wants to, who can't believe nobody wants to get paid $14 an hour to unload his giant car, uh, shipping container of bran flakes. Right, exactly. And I mean, like, you you hear from the members of these unions, like we have a quote here uh, from Trevor Beetleman, president of BCTGM Local 3G and a fourth generation Kellogg's employee, which is incredible to me. That's why. Uh, yeah. And, and the, the statement from him echoes so many things that we've heard about so many uh, labor conditions across the country. He says, this is after just one year ago, we were hailed as heroes as we worked through the pandemic seven days a week, 16 hours a day. Now, apparently, we are no longer heroes. Very quickly, you can go from hero to zero. We don't have weekends, really. We just work seven days a week, sometimes 100 to 130 days in a row. For 28 days, the machines run, then rest three days for cleaning. They don't even treat us as well as they do their machinery. Yeah, and like that... Like that many hours a day is already bad enough, Mm -hmm. but working every day for 130 days in a row without a single day off, 
Like, cause that's one of the things that I've seen in some of the, the way that the company is trying to spin this is they'll be like, oh, well, Hey, look, we, we, we love our workers, but our workers are incredibly well compensated. You have all of these workers making $120,000 a year, which, Hey, $120,000 a year is, is that's a, that's, that's a good amount of money. But the, there's a really good, as, as usual, More Perfect Union did a very good video where they interviewed a bunch of folks about this. And in there, they specifically addressed that, which is there are, uh, you know, a group of, of some of these workers who, who make, you know, get to make over six figures because they're working like fucking 80 hour weeks. So you can't compare somebody who's making $120,000 know, a year, which is, you know, that's a good amount of money, but it's, be, it's coming out of, you know, their bodies because they're putting all of this effort and all of this labor into the company. And the company is getting insanely rich off of this labor intensification. Right. So if anything, that like the workers that are getting paid $120,000 a year because they're working, you know, 3,500, 4,500 hours a year, which is like, again, about twice what the, the, the standard consideration for a, a work year is like, if anything, those people are underpaid. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be fucking paying them $120,000 a year in overtime and, you know, missed weekends and skipped vacations and whatever. If they didn't know that all of that fucking extra work wasn't going to make them half a million dollars on the right. year, you know, that people don't employ you out of the goodness of their hearts. They employ you because they need your surplus value to make their business yeah. run. Yeah. And, and so folks have mentioned in at, at different ones of these facilities that over the past decade, Kellogg's has been slowly cutting the number of jobs at each of these places, in some cases outsourcing work, but in many cases, simply in, like cutting jobs and not replacing them. And so intensifying labor through staff shortages and for mandatory overtime. Uh, they specifically mentioned, there was a quote here from uh, one of the workers at the Lancaster, Pennsylvania facility, Carrie Williams, who said, quote, it's like a death of a thousand cuts. They're slowly eliminating jobs out of the Lancaster plant. We had to work through this COVID for the last two years, and they've just shown disrespect for the union name. They even want to remove our union logo from the cardboard cereal box. Jesus. End quote. And, and this is, again, because people will say, oh, well, you know, the pandemic and the, the economy, there's, businesses are struggling, which is not true. Uh, <laughs> but specifically in this case, Kellogg's. Kellogg's reported a profit of $1.2 billion in 2020. And during, you know, the pandemic cereal sales, while, you know, more people were spending time at home, cereal sales went up almost 10%. And additionally, during that time period, Kellogg's had enough cash on hand that they did a stock buyback program of over $1.5 billion. And their CEO, Steve Kahalane, which is like, pick one last name, um, <laughs> like... It received $11.6 million in compensation last year, but they're out here painting these folks that are working for a third of a year without a day off, sometimes, you know, two shifts a day, every day for that. They're calling those people greedy while they're spending all their record profits on stock buybacks and their CEO's gigantic fucking salary. Yeah, I love to be told that I'm being greedy by a millionaire who probably has 
uh, Atlas shrugged on his fucking bookshelf, yeah. extolling the virtues of narcissistic self-interest. Yeah, because I moved some numbers around in a spreadsheet that fired people and made the company more profits. Therefore, I should definitely make a shitload of money. Yeah, I, I took on all the risk, okay? I had to risk <laughs> yeah. possibly paying my workers more, which would have made me very sad. So I'm basically yeah. doing the heavy lifting here. Yeah. yeah. So there's a quote we have from the BCTGM president, Anthony Shelton, who... Uh, you know, recently has had some quotes in here from the Nabisco strike who said, quote, Kellogg's response to these loyal, hardworking employees has been to demand these workers give up quality health care, retirement benefits and holiday and vacation pay. The company continues to threaten to send additional jobs to Mexico if workers do not accept outrageous proposals to take away protections that workers have had for decades. And so obviously, as you know, Kellogg's is unsurprisingly bringing in scabs to try and replace striking workers and therefore. Uh, while I don't actually know that BCT TGM has officially called for a boycott, uh, we are calling for one. <laughs> um, and so just in addition to the cereals, you know, are from Kellogg's some of the brands and I I'll, I'll post this in the, the discord for folks, but like stuff like Pringles, uh, Cheez-Its, uh, let's see, what's it? Cashy cereal, uh, all sorts of cereals are that are from Kellogg's. For the duration of the strike, we recommend folks not buy those. And, Don't buy cereal. Uh, Just stop buying yeah. cereal. <laughs> <laughs> but and in addition to avoid the annoying discourse around fucking boycotts that happened when this came up, in addition, there are also of course strike funds mm-hmm. for all of these uh, groups of striking workers, which will be included in the show notes that uh, obviously we recommend that folks contribute that way because it materially helps out the the workers while they're out of work and and fighting for their rights. And in addition, since they're striking all over the place, if you happen to live near Memphis or Omaha or Battle Creek or Lancaster and, and, and have the time and can go out and show your support, like to these folks, I'm sure they would appreciate the solidarity. But... Uh, we will obviously be monitoring the uh, Kellogg strike as it goes on. Uh, but this, you know, with 1400 workers out there that I will definitely be having an impact. I'm sure that hopefully some folks are pulled into supporting the strike, even if they don't necessarily have the class consciousness to do so just because their treats don't end up showing up on uh, the store. And <laughs> sure, quite so, yeah. so high of a, a level as normal, but in keeping strike Tober going this week, uh, our last big strike story, we've got 2,000 workers at Mercy Hospital in Buffalo going on strike. And this is, you know, th- this has got pretty much the same stuff we hear with most of the nurses' strikes. It's, this is for over safer staffing levels and to prevent the implementation of a two-tiered compensation system. Oh, and- another two-tiered system, you say? It really feels like it's their main tactic these days is really just because they saw it in the gig economy. They saw the the compartmentalization of an entire section of the workforce. And they're like, well, we could do that on a smaller scale, even on our own business. Two-tiered systems, my fellow worker, are not for the workplace. Two-tiered systems are for gardens. That's the only (laughs) thing that should be two-tiered. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, and so the stories that were coming out of this one uh, with these nurses are pretty rough. Like, if I was somebody who lived in this area, I would, upon hearing them, would be very mad at the company, Catholic Health, Health System, that, that has been running this place and has clearly been running it, shockingly, in the most profiteering manner that they can. Because they, 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 in here, there was, this was, a, I think, out of a Nation article where they interviewed 
uh, one of the workers there, uh, Debbie Hayes, who's a upstate area director for the CWA and a member of the bargaining committee, who said, quote, the stories we're hearing from our members are heartbreaking. People are telling us stories about using ripped towels to make washcloths, using hospital socks for washcloths, not being able to get medical grade gloves, not being able to get urinals and using suction canisters for patients to urinate in. And like of all the places to have unsanitary conditions, which is one of the big things these folks are striking about a hospital is the last place you want to be facing that. Like, this sort of stuff is why is how you get like MRSA running rampant mm-hmm. in places because you have these hospital administrations that have decided, you know, our bottom line would be so much better if we don't actually fill that nursing shortage we have on this shift and just try and run the people there a little more ragged. It'll be fine, right? Of and, course. Yeah. And- I, I love mismanagement in the only building in town where there's designated biomedical waste disposal bins. That's my favorite. Yeah. And, and they point out that like a lot of the workers that have been hired by the Mercy Hospital are who are like you know supposed to be maintaining this situation are a already understaffed and b making less than fourteen dollars an hour. So like again, you have these situations where you have these companies being like nobody wants to work. It's like yeah, nobody wants to break their back for twenty seven thousand dollars a year because you can't fucking live on that. So right, like yeah. they're not even trying to fill these. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. They, if they really cared about, again, we'll just go back to, I don't know, episode four of Work Stoppage, when we're just like <laughs> saying if they really cared about getting these things done, about doing these jobs, then they would provide enough people and they would provide those people enough compensation so that they can live their lives. They're not overburdened by the day-to-day bullshit that they have to go through because they are, you know, taking care of uh if you really want these things done then you have to organize it that way you cannot organize especially healthcare around a yeah. profit you just can't it's not possible so you have, yeah and you have these people who are on short staff teams who are making sometimes uh less than 14 dollars an hour and you have stories like one nurse from a court cardiothoracic unit who reported that while the unit is supposed to be staffed with 11 nurses and five aides, it commonly only has five nurses and two aides for 40 patients, preventing nurses from providing the care patients need. And I don't know what cardiothoracic is, but I imagine it has something to do with the, the heart and the blood system. And that seems a little important to be leaving less than half of the required staff running the entire section of the hospital for 40 patients who might be dealing with life or death situations on a relatively consistent basis. Yeah. This brings me to a correction I want to make from earlier about what I said about needing to double the employment uh, clearly double is not even enough they are running these things at under 50 percent, and not only in the nurses industry in the like entertainment industry in all industries the reason that you are stressed out at work is because you are purposefully understaffed right well and fortunately one of the the glimmers of hope we're seeing from this is that union members are saying that their patients and the community at large seems to be quite supportive patients are putting signs of support for the union in their windows and some have even come out to picket with the healthcare workers yeah that's insane like oh i'm in the fucking hospital with a broken leg but as soon as i get my cast on i'm gonna go down there and (gasps) hobble around with a sign because these nurses who have taken care of me while i've had a serious injury are not being 
being treated well yeah. enough. I mean, yeah. I went should... into I went into the hospital recently for some some medical care, and I came out kind of uh, doped up. But I was told that as I was uh, being wheeled out, I was telling the person that they need a union, and that <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah. I I really want uh, if I if I really care about how good my care is, then then they need a union. <laughs> it's That's a right. Like... It's a shame there would there wasn't someone there to tell them. Like she would be saying this even if she was sober. Just so you know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and and they they also mentioned in here that that in addition to the direct support from the patients who have recognized, you know, the, just their own material interest in having better care, mm-hmm. like they they they've been getting support from the local community with uh, low like other unions, community members, even some local businesses providing free food, and and showing up to walk the picket line with the striking workers. I had a, a quote in here where uh, one of the folks said, quote, Buffalo's a labor town. The percentage of unionized workers in Buffalo is well above the national average and the support from the labor community and organized labor for the striking workers has been incredible. And so that's the sort of stuff that like allows these strikes to continue, that helps helps them actually be one. Because when folks are out there and they know the people are behind them and that they're actually receiving material support like food, then that gives striking workers, you know, the energy to stay out there and, and fight for this sort of stuff. And so that's always really good to see. We need that in every strike. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how about a, how about a strike that's been going on for 20 years? (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, at this point, I'm not sure it quite qualifies as a strike anymore, but I mean, it started as one. (laughs) This is even cooler than a strike. This is a factory occupation. This is is what we've been advocating for the whole time. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the the CNT FAI is smiling proudly from the annals of history right now at these Argentine workers, Argentinian, I don't know which one is correct, uh, who have been occupying the Zanon Ceramic Tile Factory in Argentina since October 1st of 2001. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Two thousand and one, y'all. Like, I, yeah, I, I was in my fucking pajamas watching <laughs> Sonic X at eight in the morning in two thousand and one. So, shouts out to these Argentinian workers who have been doing the damn thing since then. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I guess after the uh, the company basically tried to fire all of the workers and close down the factory. The workers then decided that there is no reason for this factory to go away. There's no reason for our jobs to go away. Why don't we just do this ourselves? And so what they did was they went in there and they occupied the factory. Now, they did see some repression from uh, mm-hmm. the police where they tried to, you know, get the workers out of there but uh the workers persevered and to this date they still reside in that factory which is absolutely amazing just yeah yeah we were really great yeah originally like saw some of this from an article in left voice that was talking about the commemorating the 20 years since the workers took over the factory and they had a quote in here from a book about it the book is called the xenon militant factory without bosses Uh, written by Raul Godoy, who took part in the occupation. It said, quote, Zenon thus became a laboratory of class struggle. From our militant point of view, the factory occupation had the immediate objective of stopping the boss's attack and defending jobs, but we didn't separate it from the more general class struggle from our perspective of class politics, end quote. And that's the thing. Like, that's... (coughs) 
that's how you get from, you know, getting a good mobilization, having a strike, getting one contract, and then, you know, oh, hey, we did it, we won, and then you go go back to normal, and then eventually you, you come right back around to the, the, the owners trying to claw all those gains you made back while people haven't been mobilized. It's like, well, you know, if you actually keep that perspective, you've done that education necessary so folks understand the link between their individual stru- shop floor struggles and the wider class struggle, then the ceiling for what you can do with that becomes much higher as demonstrated by this, this situation where now 20 years later, and they, they point out, cause I, one of the things I thought was interesting was the parallels here and some of the differences when we talked about the socialist Kellogg's factory in, in, yeah, Venezuela, in Venezuela, I was going to bring that up as well, because yeah. while the workers in Venezuela had state support, mm-hmm. And were event and were able to get help from the local and 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 event and national government to deal with the legal issues with the the parent company and 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 get you know their supply chains moving again and, and keep the the place running. These workers in Argentina faced resistance from the from like the state the the national government and had to fight you know tooth and nail both the state and the corporation and still managed to keep the place open. And, and now the, the factory has been renamed Fabricas in Patrones, which just means factory without bosses. And they have become a successful ceramic tile business in the area. They've expanded their operations, including hiring. I believe the number was over 170 mm-hmm. additional workers from the area. And in keeping with the understanding of the, the way that their struggle is linked with the other struggles in the area, they've provided free, you know, tiles produced at their factory to the things that like the workers and the poor in the area need. They provided those for local uh, community centers, hospitals, and they even built their own local community health clinic to serve the local poor. So right. like mm-hmm. these folks are killing it. Well, and this <laughs> and really it also reminds me of, of the, this is no longer a McDonald's. It's a food bank yes, story. Sure. Well, and I think this really highlights the uh, the fact that like factories and quote unquote like traditionally industrial workplaces are still absolutely one of the major sites of potential revolutionary change. It's easy sure. if you're from the United States to be like, well, we can't really do the the workshop floor organizing because we don't make anything in this country anymore. But it's like. Do you think your products just fucking appear out of thin air? <laughs> there are factories all over the world that produce everything that you buy uh, or that you otherwise receive, and they are still absolutely ripe for you know syndicalist or you know in the case of Venezuela more like Marxist uh, chavismo type uh, arrangements. But like the there's still a golden fucking opportunity here to take over the actual locations of production for the workers. And it's really, really cool. Cause I mean, the Venezuela Kellogg's factory was cool, but like you said, they had state backing. They basically went to their state government and they were like, okay, what paperwork do we have to fill out to make this formal? Uh, and they were, you know, guided to the correct forms. Whereas in uh, Argentina, they, they had to build this up from fucking nothing. So and I, I don't know a ton about the actual situation in Argentina, but I know it is a fairly liberal, like westernized, whatever that means, kind of like relatively repressive capitalist state. So like if they can do it in Argentina, you could absolutely take over like the fucking Hayworth factory in your town or or the, the coal mine or the whatever, you know, in your area. 
Yeah, and and Argentina right now there is a debate apparently going on in their uh, national legislature where the the right wing in the country is trying to weaken their labor laws like more than they already mm-hmm. are. And the the left voice article did point out that that you know that just only further shows the importance of this sort of thing because like this worker owned collective can just be like, yeah, we, we don't want to lower the, <laughs> the protections for our workers. Cause right. that's us. We're in charge. Well, and it's, like, it also shows that like these kind of worker operated ventures can absolutely succeed. Right. And yes. like they, they do succeed in places like Venezuela where they don't experience really any opposition from the state, but they can also succeed in places like Argentina at the cost of spending the time and energy to overcome that resistance from the state. And that's a really, really key factor because it, it goes back to the argument about people telling you, well, socialism failed in such and such countries. It's like, well, no, socialism was undermined. Like worker ownership didn't fail in a bunch of places in the United States. It was either undermined or something that was not worker ownership in the first place presented as worker ownership. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that this also goes to uh, what we are saying about like the the general strike in India and other forms of organization is that these people are all engaged in actual class struggle and they're engaged on the rank and file level where the workers themselves have to do the work where they are rec- where they have to recognize that the union is them. It is not some ephemeral larger entity that they happen to get to have a card from. It is literally them they are the what they are the keepers of their destiny and they are the ones who have to fight for it and we are those people as well uh i i think that it's gonna come up in in the meme review which is right around the corner when i mm-hmm. when i get to one of these <laughs> but uh but yeah i just wanted to make sure to bring that up yet again every every time will not fail to bring up rank and file organizing mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah so so that was just a, a really inspiring story that it was really cool to learn about and what also is always an inspiring story is the memes in the meme review that's right, <laughs> right. <laughs> especially I got to say, you know, obviously we featured a ton of stuff from Means Morning News and, and Teenage Stepdad and, and, and the good folks over at Means TV, but this has got to be one of my favorites from them. It's so good. <laughs> so this is a, basically it's a fake tabloid along the lines of, you know, like the National Enquirer, but it, instead it's obvious headlines. Mean more, Means Morning News, October 10th, 2021. <laughs> News that'll make you say no fucking shit. And then I love the little <laughs> price marker where it just says $420, Canada. It's just so, so fucking fun. Also, aren't things usually, don't they usually cost a little more in Canada? Yes. Or has it flipped around? Is it, no. I, I don't keep track of currency. No, I'm pretty exchange. sure the Canadian dollar is still weaker. But. Yeah. It's that's funnier that way, <laughs> but no, because this is in response to the the big bomb, as they say, quote unquote, the Facebook whistleblower, quote unquote, bombshell, right? And then it's just got you know the picture of Mark Zuckerberg testifying before the Senate with the big headline: "Corporation prioritizes profits over people." Giant company accused of doing regular ass giant company shit. Quotation: <laughs> We already knew that. <laughs> Fucking everybody. <laughs> yeah. And then they've got the photo of him with the the sunscreen on that looks like a white like death mask, and it says "Wealthy Mutant with weird haircut." Denies truth. Uh, <laughs> Study like, reveals stu- 100% of corporations exist solely for profit generation. <laughs> yeah, surprise like, twist. No fucking Shocks shit, fucking nobody. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because like 
that and that's the thing is is that you have so many of these like whenever you see these exposés in the mainstream press where it'll be like this company is actually prioritizing making money over its customers and it's like yeah that's bad but that's as they said in here that's every company under capitalism you guys it's kind of of the converse of the thing i saw this morning where there was a financial times article that said u.s overtakes china as biggest bitcoin mining hub after beijing (laughs) ban crackdown on digital currencies knocks country's share of crypto production to zero and i'm like yeah what did you think a crypto ban was gonna do (laughs) like this isn't news like yeah well there's just one of those memes yes it reminds yeah of the of the not new category uh it just it also reminds me of the reporting on how people are feeling online which is in every yes. <laughs> yeah people yeah, are pe- more upset online than ever is this the internet's fault <laughs> it's like i don't know are people living worse lives than they were before <laughs> maybe it'd be a better question yeah, yeah. well and speaking of people living worse lives that's right <laughs> oh my this gosh. next meme which we should describe really the like. photo first, maybe. Yeah, for <laughs> for um, dudes in, like a, in a kiddie pool, adult, adult. dudes in a kiddie pool, shirtless at least, um, <laughs> uh, taking up filly- all the space. They're, yeah, they're filling while, it. While four kids look on sadly <laughs> that these adults have taken over their kiddie pool. And the adults are labeled multi-million dollar realty corporations. The kiddie pool is the national real estate market. And the kids looking sadly are people who want to buy a house to actually live in it. And this, of course, <laughs> references the fact that over the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic, major realty corporations and other non-realty corporations have been using... Uh, single family homes as the new speculative market du jour, which much like crypto nerds buying up all of the GPUs within six seconds of them becoming available online is artificially inflating the price of a home for anybody who wants to get out from under the thumb of renting and just pay a fucking mortgage instead. Yeah, we we love to see monopoly concentration applied to housing, don't we, folks? It's It's never led to anything bad. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is piggybacking on all of the, like, Bill Gates buying up all of the farmland and, like, people like Tesla and Amazon asking for the United States to clandestinely intervene in economies that are rich in things like lithium. I mean, it's just like there's these huge players with these fucking Cthulhu-esque motivations that are so detached from the lived reality. BlackRock group. Yeah, BlackRock group, fucking everybody. And they're out here moving around single-family homes en masse, like in the thousands, the tens of thousands at a time around the market to, one, generate more finance capital for themselves, but two, make sure that you and I always have to pay somebody two to three times what the place we're living in is fucking worth in the first place just to have a fucking roof over our heads. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like, you know, I've, I've definitely seen some places, you know, uh, obvious, the, we see, like, the, the media narratives around this being like, oh, the the eviction moratoriums are hurting mom and pop landlords. And it's like, well, a most landlords are these gigantic faceless corporations, but B, even if there were somehow in violations of all laws of concentrations of capital, just a mill, like 10 million 
small landlords. That doesn't solve the problem. Commodification of shelter is the problem. Like it, it doesn't matter if it's a big landlord or a small landlord. Yes, we should focus on the big landlords. They're the bigger problem. But like the ultimate, this all comes back to the fact that you are treating a place somebody needs to like stay to live as a profit-seeking vehicle. Uh, and yeah. like. And then people get on you. They're like, okay, Vladimir Stalin, you want to take away <laughs> passive income from the mom and pop landlords? And it, yes. At that point, I yes. just become the internet tanky that everybody's always talking about where I'm like, Vladimir Stalin was a great man. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of somebody who was not a great man and was, in fact, a huge piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Actually, That's right. I think that this is an actual photo from PragerU. This is a real is, Steven Crowder yeah. Prager U crossover. This is shockingly not ironic. Talking about <laughs> everyone's favorite quote unquote great man of history, Amerigo Columbus. I mean, <laughs> Christopher Vespucci. I mean, uh, <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah, no. So this is just a, a profile of this loser uh, staring <laughs> off into the distance like the loser he is uh, saying Indigenous Peoples Day isn't about Columbus. It's about <laughs> teaching your kids to hate Western civilization. Yes. And, good. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. Like, sure. It's like, but, well, because that's the thing is like, A. You're right. Indigenous Peoples Day is not about Columbus. It's about indigenous, indigenous people. people. It's in the fucking name. It's like it's about, you know, acknowledging the horrific crimes inherent to settler colonialism committed against the people whose land this, you know, nation is built on that was to stolen this day. from them. And trying to actually, you know, get people to acknowledge those crimes and the ongoing process of settler colonialism and actually engage in material solidarity with indigenous groups to end settler colonialism and actually, you know, allow these nations the, the, the right to self-determination. But the other thing about this is that they always trot this shit out hate western civilization yeah what the fuck does that mean they mean what australia me <laughs> they mean uh, uh a continent slash country in the fucking asian uh in the general region of asia where a bunch of white people showed up and did a genocide on the indigenous peoples that were living there and stole all their land because that's what quote unquote western civilization is it's either the countries where that happened or the countries who perpetuated it from their sea in Europe. That's it. That's yeah. what Western civilization is. Like, right. And also, it, it, what it is, it's just kind of avoiding what the really mean to say, which is white supremacy, because yeah, this right. is exactly what the Proud Boys came out very publicly and said. They said, we are not white supremacists. We are just Western chauvinists. Right. It's like, oh, that's the same thing. <laughs> just with different words. Literally yeah. the exact same thing. I mean, that's the whole thing. Like, what is Western civilization? Does it include South Africa? Yes, it fucking does. And that should tell you everything you fucking need to know about it. Yeah, like, Jesus well, Christ. Yeah, it's like what Western civilization, what they mean by that, you know, is the fruits of slavery and right. genocide right. and fucking, you know, all of the horrific things that come along with that. And Calvinism. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. And it's like, yes. 
I, I would like to teach kids to hate slavery and genocide and eugenics and land theft and the destruction of the climate. And if those are the things that you're choosing to identify Western civilization with, maybe Western civilization sucks ass and should be, you know, superseded by something more sustainable and less fucking murderous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what has Western civilization ever produced? The Nazis? Checkmate. Western chauvinists? Check fucking mate. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think this leads us to, you know, struggling against that. And this next meme, which I think is actually kind of not that. Uh, And so if you've been in organizing circles on the Internet, you might have seen a quote unquote general strike in the United States going around for, I don't know if it was like the 15th, I guess in a couple days or something like that. Right. right. Uh, this, this, This meme is actually an office meme, which is spent to kind of bring that conversation all the way down into a very succinct image. I mean, it's the meme that always pops into my head. The old, I declare bankruptcy. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's poignant. Yeah. So it it says, I declare general strike. And then the other character comes in and says, you can't just say general strike and expect anything to happen. (laughs) And obviously the thing goes, I didn't say it. I declared it. Yeah. Which is so uh, funny. Yeah. Because if you actually look at all of the, the actual even reporting from uh, I saw a socialist alternative put out a piece on this, which was actually a pretty decent take, which is like, oh, it's really great that people care to think about this sort of thing. But it is wholly insufficient to just hope that it will happen by putting a bunch of memes out on the Internet and, right, yeah. and to not actually do any on the ground organizing, going out there into the workplaces, making sure that people are not just going to like have one person walk off the shift and get fired with no repercussions like there there is so much risk that people are put at through this misinformation campaign i mean when uh, a lot of people like to quote chairman mao saying a revolution is not a dinner party but they forget the rest of the quote which is that and a general strike is not a flash mob (laughs) it is produced by like a sustained labor struggle and there might be something approaching a general strike towards the end of this year but it's not going to be because some fucking weirdos on the internet created a facebook event it's going to be because liberals well whatever yeah exactly same difference it's it's because there is a sustained labor struggle in this country that is coming to a head in a bunch of different industries that have been particularly well mobilized to fight for their rights as laborers and if there is a convalescence of of those organizing efforts that takes place across a broad enough scale we might have something approaching a general strike on our hands but do not be fooled and do not let well-meaning liberals on the internet tell you that this is because they all smugly got together and said well what if you just don't go to work because the internet told you to on a given day (laughs) yeah well because it's like that's a big part of why we talk about things like the Indian Farmers Movement, or the Colombian National Strike Committee, and all these other groups all over the world. It's like... Partially just because, you know, they're they're like momentous labor stories that deserve being covered in their own right, but also because like... The class struggle is kind of behind here in this country. We haven't had the material conditions to create a general strike in like uh, like a century. So like we get, there are, there are other places we got to look. Folks that are doing the the really tough background work that it takes to get that done. And so that's why I always you know implore people. It's like 
really look at what the Indian farmers are doing. Really mm-hmm. look at what the peasants and workers in, in Colombia are doing. What the what the movement towards socialism in Bolivia has been able to do. Mm-hmm. Like the indigenous movements there. That sort of organizing and, you know, even stuff that is here that's relatively advanced, like you look at stuff that the water protectors have been doing and the way that they've been trying to yep. get folks involved with their struggle. That sort of work, that on-the-ground work to actually bring people from different industries and different, you know, uh, sectors of labor together. And even, you know, in like we looked at the case of the Indian general strike they just had for 10 hours, even reaching out to some, like, small portions of the petty bourgeoisie, like shop owners who, who you know, might be more sympathetic to the working class. That sort of like organizing, which is going to meetings and calling people who signed your petition and setting up email campaigns, which is boring as shit. It's not the fun stuff. It's not the stuff they ever write about in the histories of revolutions, but it is absolutely like essential. It is the groundwork that allows you to do any of these like bigger movements. And and that's why, like, you know, we harp on this point, not because we don't want general strikes, but because in order for them to happen, we have to get past this idea that you can just say one's going to go and it'll happen well, on its own. Right. Well, and also there's, there's yeah. a, there's a parallel between people who are asking like, how do we create the conditions for a general strike and people who ask a similar question from a more socialist communist Marxist point of view, which is like, how do we create the conditions for a proper revolution in the United States. The answer is the fucking same. International solidarity. The revolution is not going to start. The the general strike probably is not going to start in the United States itself. It's going to be fueled by economic and logistical breakdowns across the world that are going to be affected by the rising socialist sentiment in production centers, in former colonies, in currently client states of the United States across the world. The imperial periphery is doing the legwork, is already taking the lead on these things. And if you don't have the stomach for the the email replying office work (laughs) that it's going to take to do the revolution, take a step out and get informed what the people who are not in the fucking imperial core are doing to improve not just there, but the global working situation and try and propagandize that, spread it, or take their lead and follow their example and do the things they're doing. Because there's plenty of revolution revolutionary energy in the United States, in the quote-unquote Western world to harness, but there is a lot more happening outside of it, and turning a blind eye to that is just a huge, huge step in the wrong direction to being an effective unionist or leftist or revolutionary or whatever in the imperial centers. Well, and to try to put a bow on this one, I also just want to bring up the idea that, you know, oh, all propaganda is good or something like that. Well, I just really want to put out there that if you said there was going to be a general strike and then say someone tries to participate and is fired for whatever reason or they don't get the support, the general strike doesn't happen, what you're actually doing is you're creating the conditions to actually demotivate people. You're not just, it's not an actual education program. You're not saying like, people are not Googling general strike and even if they do, there is not this information out there when you Google it. Right. Like, you're not actually providing any sort of revolutionary potential just through this agitprop Uh, propagandization it's just that's not how it works right and so speaking of liberals sure the 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 meme review (laughs) (laughs) uh we've got a a official spooky season meme 
in here, which uh, was originally aimed at uh, <laughs> folks who may not be quite so enthusiastic about some folks who really enjoy the Halloween season, but has been <laughs> repurposed for uh, labor purposes. <laughs> yes. So this is a four-panel comic with a person in a skeleton costume and then a person who is not in a costume, just wearing a hat. And the person in the skeleton costume in the first frame says, Death to the bourgeoisie! <laughs> well, or, I don't know. They're like throwing candy up in the air. Yeah, very excited, <laughs> yeah. very excited. And then uh, the, the non-dressed-up person says, Don't you think that's a little harsh? Don't we need to reform? And then they, the person is cut off, and the person in the skeleton outfit just says, Hey, and grabs them and says, Don't talk to me anymore. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just love the energy here. I just, I just love it. It's like, you know, I don't have time to listen to your bullshit. Yeah. Well, and this, I mean, this reflects something I, I, I've told people before, like, if you think you can get somewhere with somebody, absolutely try to help them develop a better opinion on things. But there's also something that you should do. And it's not even self-care. It's just making sure you're using your time wisely, which is that if someone immediately starts giving you talking points that you know they're not going to back down from... Just don't have the conversation. You don't have to listen to liberals. You don't fucking have to. If they want to come along and be like, well, you know, I really feel like your boss is making a few good points in this situation. Just stop listening. Walk the fuck away or kick them out of your, your picket line or whatever. Whatever is the most appropriate option. You don't have to deal with that. If they're not in good faith, you don't have to be either. Tell them to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, on that note, we are going to end the episode for the day. I want to thank all of the patrons out there for supporting the show. We really appreciate mm-hmm. that. And if you're not a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash workstoppage to throw us $5 a month and help support us. You also get access to some of our overtime episodes where we go over some labor history, some you know actual theory on, on why we do this stuff. It's super good, good content content uh you know you can also give us a good review share our content with people follow john on facebook at uh facebook villain follow the rest of us or more specifically dan at work stoppage pod on twitter you can listen to beep beep lettuce or red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest that's right solidarity forever solidarity out there solidarity them checks say we hip and ting Chew them no no and ting We have them going and ting Now pop no style All strictly roots Now pop no style All strictly roots See me from the road and you not call out to me Do you see me in my pants and ting See me in my altar back let me give you a heart attack Give me a little bass Make me wine out my waist Uptown top ranking See me in my bends and ting Dolly true constant spring Them chicks say we come from Cosmo Spring But the true them no know and ting Them no know say we top ranking Uptown top ranking Should I see me on the ranking dread? Check out
Now pop no stop. 